Hello and welcome to episode two of Connecting ALS. I'm your host, Mike Stevenson, from the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. On this month's episode, we explore three topics of importance for many in the ALS community. First up, we connected with Michelle Traumann of Purim, Minnesota, and Daniel Vance from Team Gleason in New Orleans to discuss the process of voice banking. We then welcomed Dr. Ezgi Tiriaki into our studio to talk through the current model of clinical care for ALS. Lastly, we sat down with Donnie Raveling of St. Paul and Jennifer Myrie from the ALS Association to scratch the surface on the topic of home health care. Shortly after Michelle Troutman of Purim, Minnesota was diagnosed with ALS, one of her clinical specialists identified her as a strong candidate for voice banking. She's currently creating a pair of synthesized voices that she may eventually need as her disease progresses and was gracious enough to share her experience with us. So on the phone with us today from Purim, Minnesota is Michelle Troutman. Welcome to the show, Michelle, and thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. And if you don't mind, uh, just for the context of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and if you could, how you arrived at an ALS diagnosis? Sure. Well, I am 53. Yes. How old am I now? Last year, about March, I started having some symptoms in my left arm, but I had just slept funny. That went on for oh, quite a while and just noticed some more weakness. And finally, a friend of ours who's a physical therapist said, eh, you got something going on here. You need to get checked out. Wow. And... Do you remember kind of as you're going through that, what was going through your mind at the time? Were you thinking from an early, an early on point, this may be something very serious? You know what? I never really did. I just figured I had tweaked a muscle. Um, a few years back, I had had um, some neck issues, thought maybe something had tweaked again in my neck. Never once thought of ALS. Right, right. You know, I mean, because most of the research I've done, I wasn't one of the prime candidates, but lo and behold, here we are. Sure, sure. Well, thank you very much, Michelle, for being willing to share your story and also for being open to discussing the topic I want to get into today, which is voice banking. And for anyone who is unfamiliar with the concept, voice banking is essentially the recording of one's voice and speech patterns for the creation of a synthesized voice to be used with software and speech generating devices in the event that ALS eventually robs you of your ability to verbally communicate, which does happen, unfortunately, for many people living with the disease. There's also message banking, which is a simple recording of specific messages or phrases in your own voice that you can access at any time. We should kind of make that distinction between voice banking and message banking. But Michelle, when did you first learn about voice banking as a possibility? Um, last November on my first visit to Mayo when I met with Kristen. Oh, Kristen from, from the ALS Association. Yes. She told me I was kind of in that sweet spot. I had a lot of really good options of people who could help me out with that. And what, were your, what was your initial reaction to hearing about that? What did you think about the possibility? I thought it was a good one because I wanted something I could take control of. When you're getting this diagnosis, you feel very out of control. So it was something I could be in control of for my life. And as you kind of weighed in on that decision about whether or not to do voice banking, what, in addition to having that control, 
and being able to do something about it. Were there other motivating factors for you? Yeah, I wanted to be able to have something that sounded like me because you hear so many things that sound nothing like what I would think the person was. I didn't really want to sound like a computer mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. and when I needed. And I wanted key things, wanted it to be more me where I got to say stuff in my tone and how I would say it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I hear from some people living with ALS that the primary reason that they, they do look into this sort of technology is because they don't want that voice that sounds robotic. I think many folks associate synthesized voice with the late Dr. Stephen Hawking, who of course didn't have access to voice making technology at the time. He lost his voice. But you, it sounds like you wanted something that was going to be more you, more connected to your identity. Exactly. And I wanted, I also read a couple storybooks, so I had something to leave behind. And where was it that you completed your recordings? Did you go to a nearby clinic or university? I went to Minnesota State University, Moorhead, with Mary Beth Plankers. They are an awesome group. She used the Audacity system. And yeah, we spent about a total of three hours doing on different days. But yeah, it was, it was a really great experience. I would you know, if someone wanted to do that, I would highly recommend it. And can you walk us through that process a little bit? You go, in your case, you went to the university and you, do you sit down in kind of like a, a sound booth or a lab of some sort? You're actually in a soundproof booth, which is kind of it, oddly very relaxing and calming. <laughs> you were in there with two of her grad students and they kind of prompt you when to say what. And, you know, you say hello and they pause you and type in hello and then you get to listen to yourself say it back and... And so, yeah, it's kind of an interesting experience, but I was a little overwhelmed at first. But yeah, like I said, I got very relaxed and we had a good time with it. Do you kind of get into a rhythm, I suppose, as you're reading through those lines, you start to anticipate what they'll need in terms of levels and, and pronunciation and that kind of thing? Yeah, you, you do. And, you know, if they noticed that I was getting tired, we'd take a little break and get some water and that kind of thing. So... Like I said, the first first session was only about an hour. The second one was two. That one, and it was a little warmer day, so that little closed inbox we opened it up a couple times to let it some right. fresh air. Right, <laughs> three bodies in there. It gets a little cozy, but yeah. And was it was it a little bit draining just to I, I think about having to speak and recite those kind of lines for more than an hour? Did it wear you out a little bit, kind of going through that so much at once? A little bit, because not only were we doing that, I also had the giant binder on my lap flipping through it, and as my left arm is weak anyhow, so that was kind of a struggle there after a while of just holding the binder, so. Sure. And so you wrapped that up. When did you, when was your last session? When did you complete the process? May 3rd. Oh, okay. So not that long ago. Not that long ago, yeah. The first one I went was in January, and then we kind of waited for the weather to get a little nicer. So have you had a chance to hear your synthesized voice? I know it takes a while for them to put that together. Have they sent it back to you yet? I haven't got all of it back, but they did let me listen to a little bit that first day in January after I had read the storybook. And so that was kind of fun. They said, oh, you should hear this. And it was neat. I didn't sound quite as mini mousious as I thought I would. Sure. Yeah, hearing you, even if it's just a straight recording, hearing your own voice back can sometimes be a little bit strange. It's not necessarily how you hear yourself in your head. Right. So that was really different. So when they send you your synth voice back, your full voice back, are you planning to use that? I know um, Model Talker and Predictable and some of the other software pieces that we can put on tablets now. Have they have they told you how you might be able to use it? She did say there was a way to, because they will send me like a, a zip drive or whatever, and we could put that in. I'm also going to try the acapella through 
the LS Association. I've been set up for that. So we're going to give that one a try too, just to kind of compare, see which one we think sounds better with my voice. Yeah, that's one I want to talk to you about because like most technology and software, this is an area that's evolving very quickly. It seems like every few months there's a new version or tool that in some way streamlines things just a bit more. And some of these programs even make it possible to record at home with a headset mic similar to the one that you're using to speak with us today. And there's that new software you mentioned, Acapella, that I'm told produces really high quality results in less time. And I know that the ALS Association and Team Gleason have started to utilize it. What do they tell you about what's different between Acapella and Audacity, what you're using before? I think Acapella is more of my a synthesized voice that I will say like 320 phrases, and then they'll take that to convert into my voice. Where the audacity, I think, is just my voice in snippets, if I understand correctly. Okay, sure. That makes sense. Michelle, we often talk about ALS being a disease of loss, losing kind of one thing after another. And to lose your voice, something that's very much tied to your identity, of course, that can be, I can't imagine how difficult that is. Thanks to some of these technological advancements, some people are utilizing technology like voice banking to get a piece of their vocal identity back. What would you say to others that are in a similar position and are maybe considering going down this path but are uncertain about it and and may uh, have questions? What would you say to them? I would tell them they should give it a try. I mean, I'm not going to say it's for everybody, but definitely look into it, discuss it with your family. I mean, we sat down as a family, all eight of us, and weighed the pros and cons, and we just felt it was something worth doing. I mean, if you don't want to use it, you don't have to, but it's there. Sure. You know, do it while you can, while your voice is strong. Don't wait. Right. Something that's good to have down the road. Was it something that your family specifically, was it a topic that they wanted to talk about and say, you know, your voice is important to us? They did say that. My son said he wanted me to be able to say, he he wanted to hear his Clayton Joshua, no matter what, when he did something wrong. So, (laughs) you know, there was that. So, you know, there was just certain things that we we knew we wanted to record. My kids have had this longstanding joke since they were in high school that there's a word mom won't say. I won't say it now. Um, (laughs) However, on the end of my last recording, I did say it. So when I can't have a voice, I can play it for them (laughs) or they they can have it for a later date. So yeah, just that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, things that are very personal to you, very important to you and your loved ones. Just back to acapella really quickly. Did they tell you when you're going to be able to record that or it's kind of up to you at this point? It's kind of up to me at this point. They they sent me everything and I just need to get it set up on my laptop. You do a test of like 20 phrases and then they'll get back to me and let me know if the quality's good, if they think my voice is okay and that kind of thing. So you don't spend, you know, three hours recording and then they say, oh, we can't use any of it. So that's sure. kind of nice. So you do a test first okay. and then they'll let that, you know how it's going. That makes sense. Well, I, I think this episode will probably air before uh, we have a chance to hear your synthesized voice. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, we can reconnect with you after you've gone through that because we can kind of follow up on how that turned out and see what you thought. Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. Thank you very much for the time today, Michelle. Uh, We are so grateful for your perspective and your willingness to share your story. Well, thank you for having me. It's been quite an honor. I'm glad Kristen suggested it. We wanted to follow up the conversation with Michelle by introducing an expert in voice banking, and we found exactly that in Daniel Vance of Team Gleason in New Orleans. Daniel is an occupational therapist by trade, and as part of Team Gleason is helping families all over the country with their communication needs. We stole a few minutes of his time for a phone call on the subject. 
So I'm on the phone today with Daniel Vance of Team Gleason to continue the conversation that Michelle Troutman and I had about voice banking. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. We are excited to chat with you. Thank you. Daniel is an equipment and technology coordinator and specialist with the Team Gleason Foundation. And rather than have me mess up talking about what y'all do, Daniel, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what exactly Team Gleason does for families living with ALS? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Team Gleason kind of operates with with several different initiatives that we provide assistance with. And I guess I'll start with saying we, we tend to try and assist every individual who comes to us in whatever way we can best do so. Sure. The general assistance that we provide or the most commonly requested are for power wheelchairs. We provide assistance with the seat elevator portion of the chair since that is typically denied by insurance. And we strongly believe that it's a beneficial aspect of the chair for transfers, for social engagement, for ability to reach items on shelves, for just a, a slew of different reasons. So that's typically the most generally requested power wheelchair assistance. With speech generating devices, we often assist with the copay. Again, insurance will typically cover about 80%, which leaves a copay of about 20%. So we often work with the manufacturers to cover that 20% cost. If there's, for whatever reason, an individual either cannot purchase their own insurance, denied it completely, or for the situation. It's not necessary for them to have a speech generating device because they still have good vocal quality, but they have lost access to a computer based on just the progression of ALS and they no longer have access with their hands. We can also place long-term loaners of equipment. So with speech generating devices, it's kind of a dual assistance where it's either providing assistance with the copay to buy a personal device or linking them with a long-term loaner. Then we provide assistance with message banking and voice banking, where we will pay the cost of either model talker, acapella, or both, depending on the person's personal preferences. Mm-hmm. And we also provide some technical support and assistance on the back end of making sure they're able to download the programs, work through the programs appropriately, and just providing that support through throughout the process. Sure. We also have a program, which is our adventures program, where we will assist individuals in continuing to live their lives and go on trips or vacations or kind of those meaningful experiences, whether that's attending a football game, attending a graduation of a child, Mm -hmm. attending a wedding, or going on kind of some family trip. So... We provide several of those every year. Yeah, which is So those are kind of the big aspects. We also have the Gleason House here in New Orleans, where we have several residents that we provide care for on a daily basis. It's uh, pretty amazing, Daniel, what (laughs) what the organization has been able to do in a relatively short amount of time. I think... Steve Gleason's story has inspired millions of people to really get involved with the cause and the foundation of which you're a part has done some incredible work, both in terms of providing equipment, like you mentioned, and services, but also legislatively with the Steve Gleason Act and more recently the Enduring Voices Act, which of course ensures access to communication devices for those in need. I feel like you and I could spend hours talking about a number of ALS-related topics, but what I'm really hoping to tap into today is your expertise about voice banking specifically, which is a process that has evolved quite a bit just in the last few years. And more people living with ALS are choosing to have synthesized voices created. We spoke to Michelle Troutman of Perm, Minnesota, about her experience with voice banking. But Daniel, what are you hearing from individuals living with ALS about why 
they want to explore this option? So typically, I would say a lot of times the, the process happens where an individual may not be reaching out to us directly for voice banking, but for something else. And uh-huh. we attempt to call every individual personally and, and have a conversation with them or the family, depending on the situation, just to get a feeling of the situation and to offer things like voice banking and message banking. So a lot of times we'll go through and discuss the process for them and kind of mention it to them. And so I think once, whether it's they've reached out to us or or we've reached out to them for assistance in another kind of one of our initiatives, the rationale or the reasoning is that there's so much, I guess, emotion and there's so much personalization in a voice Mm -hmm. that a computerized voice cannot really portray. And there is something lost with that if, if an individual has lost their voice. So it's, that's part of it. There is often a very emotional part of the conversation where they, an individual is kind of facing that ultimate kind of mm. way of dealing it. So the way we, we like to address it is looking at it more as almost more of an insurance that you have mm. this available to you. Yeah. Should you need it down the line? Need it down the line as opposed to not having it exactly, as opposed to not having it if you don't. So a lot of it is that wanting to have some sort of personal part of it. The downside, I guess, with the voice banking itself is it's still ultimately a synthesized voice. Mm-hmm. So it still is missing that emotional connotation. It is still missing the different ways, for instance, that you might say yes, where sometimes it's a sarcastic yes, sometimes it's a, a serious yes, sometimes. And so right. you're going to get one version of yes and not kind of all of those fine minutiae that may come along with a yes or mm-hmm or Sure. whatever that may be. So again, yep. when I'm when I'm talking about this, we, we talk about both typically message banking and voice banking, with voice banking being really strong on those novel utterances, those things that I'm not going to think of needing to say down the line and having that more personal sounding voice that reflects your voice, but being able mm-hmm. to say whatever it is that comes up in that moment. Yeah. And for a number of folks that we've talked to about voice banking specifically, they speak about identity and how their voice is very much tied to their identity. And since ALS is a disease of loss and they feel like they're losing so much to lose the sound of their voice and the way that they communicate in that way is so difficult. So getting that back in some small portion with a synthesized voice that sounds more like their own is really important to them. Is that kind of what the feedback you That's hear as well? That's definitely part of it. And, and I feel like those instances where someone has heard their synthesized voice for the first time is always a, a really amazing experience, especially for I feel like almost more so sometimes for the caretakers or the, mm-hmm. the loved ones where they've now gotten to rehear or get to hear that voice and, and the connection that they have with that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, like many things in this age and, and the world we live in now, it seems like uh, voice banking software is improving pretty rapidly and changing pretty rapidly. How do you and Team Gleason stay on top of the most recent iterations. Are you conducting a lot of your own research or are these software developers knowing now what you all do are they approaching you with solutions? How does that kind of unfold? It's kind of a mix of both. So, I mean, we're constantly in talks with and working with Model Talker and Acapella since they're they're two of our partners. In addition to them, we've been approached by some different organizations and different companies, and we're we're constantly kind of pushing at finding better ways of doing this, whether it's 
the utilization of less recordings, the, the ability to do it in a home environment as opposed to having to go somewhere, the ability to do it quicker. I think kind of a, a good example of that is about seven years ago when Steve recorded his voice, he needed over 3,000 phrases. It was right. several thousand dollars to complete. It had to be done with professional equipment. So now someone, even just in that seven years is a long time, but I mean, it's also... A, kind of in the development of things, it's, it's a pretty short time. Yeah, You can do it in your house. You can do it with your personal computer. You can do it with around 350, 250 to 400 is kind of a pretty standard range of, of phrases. It's not in the thousands of dollars. You can do it with a $40 microphone that you can purchase directly from Amazon. So right. the requirements on the end user's side is, is far less. So that's getting better. At this point, it's Still, you have to talk pretty clearly. If you have signs of dysarthria, your recorded synthesized voice is going to have those same sort of characteristics. Mm -hmm. So it's finding ways of allowing it to happen later in the progression. It's finding ways of getting everyday technology to also kind of have this built in. So working with major manufacturers and, and how you can get their voice recognition softwares, their systems to also interpret this as speech. Right. And so there's, it's a lot of different avenues of partnering with companies to do research and partnering with companies to push the technology. For sure. And a lot of it is exciting because it is changing so quickly and improving so quickly. And you mentioned now being able to record in home and being able to record with your own simpler setup. That's meant much, particularly for folks that live in rural areas that may not have access to universities or labs or sound booths where they can go and record these kind of things. I mean, as recently as a few years ago, folks would be spending hours spread out over the course of several days in a booth to record these phonemically balanced uh, phrases that would then be turned into their synthesized voice. But now, like you said, with acapella and even model, model talk to a degree, they can record that at home and that's a much simpler process. Yes. And speaking of acapella, that seems like that's now the latest and greatest thing. And some of the samples that I've heard sound really good, really accurate. Uh, are you, have you been impressed with what acapella has been able to do? So I've, I've been happy. So I made a voice recently with acapella and I was pretty impressed with it, with their, their kind of suggested minimum of 350 recordings. Model Talker is also pushing towards that side. Their new minimum inventory is 215 with the suggested of 400 voices. So both, oh, wow. both companies are really pushing to, to make it as easy on the end user as possible to kind of get the process completed. That's great. So yeah, I, I've, I've been happy with, with acapella thus far. I think one of the things that stands out to me for them is that they have the opportunity, what John Costello is calling the double dip. So the ability to record both your message banking and creating a synth synthesized voice. Okay. So one of the things that they're allowing that's pretty unique is the opportunity to upload your message banked messages and then using those messages, create a synthesized voice. Yeah, that's a, well, that's a game changer. Because for many people who may have an opportunity to do this once in a short period of time, if you can knock out both of those things in one go, that's going to be much simpler. Yes. You've mentioned costs and how they have come down significantly over the past few years. And there are, of course, costs associated with voice making and the tech involved. But organizations like Team Gleason and various chapters of the ALS Association have been partnering to cover those costs for people living with ALS 
Can you talk a little bit about how that process works? Are folks, once they learn about it, kind of just working with you to figure out the easiest way to do it? Is it are they applying for grants or is it more of a referral situation in terms of how you're connecting with families? So with Tim Gleason, it seems to be mostly referral. Either we're referring them to our services based on conversations we've had with them or a speech therapist or ALS association or a clinic presenting them with, with these options and letting them know that Team Gleason will provide funding. Our website has a page that talks about message banking and voice banking. And on that page, you can sign up for acapella or model talker and kind of connect that account with Team Gleason hmm. so that when the voice is completed, we will get the invoice for the cost and, and pay it as opposed to going directly to the individual. Nice. So, and then we, we will do that, whether it's being recorded at home, if it's being recorded in a clinic, if it's being wherever the situation, we're happy to help as many people as sure. possible with that. That's really great. This has been an enlightening conversation. I, I knew that it would be. Daniel, thank you for the time today and also for everything that you do at Team Gleason. You're welcome. We're, we're happy to help as much as possible. And for anyone interested in learning more about the Foundation's work, I encourage you to visit teamgleason.org. We will, of course, include a link in our show notes. Dr. Ezgi Tiriaki has long been recognized for her knowledge of ALS care and research and has been in the field through some significant changes to the way in which ALS care is delivered. So we thought it'd be a great idea to mine her expertise about the current clinical model, as well as where she sees ALS care heading in the future. I'm joined today by neurologist Dr. Ezgi Tiriaki. Dr. Tiriaki is an associate professor of neurology at the University of Minnesota. She's also the medical director of the ALS Center of Excellence at the VA Healthcare System in Minneapolis. She's an expert on a number of ALS-related topics, so we are thrilled to have her in the studio today. Thanks for being here, doctor. It's always great to see you. Thank you for having me. We wanted to have you in to discuss both the current and future models of clinical care for ALS. And by and large, at least in the U.S., it seems like over the last decade or so, most clinics have adopted the multidisciplinary model of care where individuals and their families uh, can meet with multiple specialists in the same visit in addition to their doctor, whereas in the past they would have to schedule eight different appointments at different locations on different days. And for someone dealing with the challenges of ALS, that makes receiving care exponentially more difficult. In addition to those savings of time and energy, doctor, what do you think are the other benefits of this current model of care? There are many benefits to being seen in a place where everybody is in tune with this disease. It is a rare disease. A lot of providers uh, outside of these centers may not have encountered ALS patients or the specific needs that a person with ALS and their family has. And so having people who are absolutely tuned in, experts in the area, have seen this a lot, have done this a lot, is a tremendous benefit. I remember vividly when I went to an ALS clinic for the very first time, I was a trainee in Indiana. This was part of my residency training in neurology. 
This is almost 20 years ago. I hate to admit that. <laughs> almost 20 years ago, but it was really palpable how the dynamic changes when there is a healthcare team that comes together around a patient and their family. I really had a sense for this is how healthcare should be delivered. And it is a model that could be applicable to many other diseases. But luckily in ALS, we have certified centers of excellence and we have funding and support to put teams like that together to serve our patients better. Sure. There is research about how these clinics work. Some research, for instance, from Ireland says that being taken care of by a multidisciplinary team allows people to live about seven months longer mm. compared to people who are not taken care of or in a team. There's research that says that people who go to centers of excellence like this, where a multidisciplinary care team is present, have better utilization of the resources that are available, have better adherence to practice guidelines. For instance, they might have access to non-invasive breathing support when they need it. They might have better access to feeding tubes when they need it. So there is research that indicates that people actually live longer as well as better when going to a multidisciplinary care setting. Wow. And for our listeners, I know that every clinic is a little bit different, but typically what group of clinicians are made up in that multidisciplinary team? Who are you seeing if you go to one of those clinics? So usually the clinics are arranged in a way that the patient and their family stay put and a variety of team members come through. We usually joke that we always outnumber our patients. So part of the team usually is a nurse who coordinates the care. Then there are providers such as physical therapy, occupational therapy. So people who focus on using the strength you have to the fullest right. and uh, providing you with the assistive tools that you might need for mobility and for your activities of daily living. A speech therapist is part of the team. They help assess speech as well as swallowing and also help uh, connect the patient to technology to enhance their ability to communicate through all phases of the disease. Sure. Social work, a very important part. There is a lot of paperwork to navigate, a lot of decisions to be made in terms of the goals of care, but also financial goals and navigating insurance companies other community resources. So social workers are essential to the team as well. Dietitians, we know that maintaining weight is a very, very strong predictor how people do. And so we pay a lot of attention to what people eat and how they're managing their weight. So the nutritionist or dietitian is a very important part. Um, who am I forgetting? The neurologist, I guess, I is also say, part the of the team. the doctor stuff's in there at some point. <laughs> There's some doctor stuff. So the neurologist usually is the person who makes the diagnosis. The neurologist is the person who manages a lot of the symptoms of ALS. Even though ALS is not a curable disease, it's, it is a very treatable disease. And a lot of the symptoms can be treated with interventions. Hmm. It might include prescribing medications, but it might also just include teaching. It might include non-pharmacological interventions. So uh, treating symptoms is a very big part of what the neurologist does. The third thing that neurologists usually do in clinics like this is that they help navigate the disease process. There are certain milestones that are predictable. We know that, for instance, people will have increasing difficulty swallowing. Right. And they will have increasing difficulty maintaining their intake of nutrition. So uh, navigating decisions around feeding tubes are usually also done with the neurologist. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we know that people will gradually have difficulty with breathing. So again, making decisions about how that issue is best navigated for that particular person, for their particular situation is something that the neurologist helps with. You might say we, we help figure out what is most important to the person mm. and try to tailor what we do to achieve those goals. 
And then lastly, research. The neurologist is usually the person who helps keep the clinic connected to research. We talk about the latest developments. If there are research studies that would be of interest, we share information about them and keep our eye out for what is happening. Doctor, you just went through this list of all the clinicians that someone may see in a multidisciplinary setting, and there's a lot of things that go into that. What do you think might be missing from that group? So there's two things that strike me as missing from the group. And again, I had the fortune of working with those specialties directly in the clinic that I used to work at, at Hennepin County Medical Center. I think having somebody with a background in rehab medicine physical medicine and rehabilitation, or PM and R, mm. is, a, is a real asset. So it's a, it's a physician who's specifically trained in the rehab aspects of a disease, and they have a very unique way of working together with the physical therapist and the occupational therapist in making things possible like adaptive hunting or, oh. you know, uh, how to travel uh, successfully or be able to do the things that somebody wants to do. They just have a very unique perspective on that, including uh, how to maintain intimacy in ALS, which is an area I think that's often neglected in clinics. Mm -hmm. The other type of specialist I think uh, brings absolute value to the table is a palliative care specialist. There are some neurologists like Dr. Sam Miser, who is trained specifically in palliative care, but I think most clinics don't have that benefit of having a palliative care expert as part of the clinic day. And again, being an expert in symptom management as well as in how to navigate difficult decisions, especially when there is varying opinions in a family, can be very helpful. So on one of these visits, if a family or an individual family sees five, six, seven specialists and then talks to their neurologist, is that team then, are they kind of huddling up and discussing how the visit went and their findings and figuring out probably the best path to take from there? Does that happen that same day? I think that's what the magic sauce of these clinics really is, is that there is this level of communication that cannot happen if you have a fragmented care delivery system. Just by virtue of being at the same place at the same time and seeing the same person, we have a built-in clinic huddle. Uh, some clinics do it at the beginning of their day. A lot of clinics do it at the end of the day. Everybody talks about what they have done or what they have recommended or the issues that they have noticed. And because we share it as a group and each of us brings our own expertise to the table, we really can make sure that we uh, stay uh, on top of ALS and so that ALS doesn't run the game, but we are helping to navigate this as best as we can. So that's where the multidisciplinary model is working. Those are some of the benefits. Thank you for outlining those. But nothing's perfect. In your <laughs> opinion, if we're looking to the future, how can this system be improved? What are some of the remaining challenges, do you believe, with this model? So one challenge we have in our healthcare system is that it's not an easily sustained model in terms of its cost. Okay. So it's always a little bit, I would say, at risk. We have sources, we get funding, a lot of clinics get funding through the ALS Association or through MDA. Some places have private foundations or additional dollars that help support those types of clinics, but they're not sustainable in our current billing system and insurance system. And so that is something that keeps us up at night. This is something that I think most clinics are aware of and worry about. The other piece is that even though we are much more patient-centric than having uh, patients go to eight different providers, mm -hmm. I don't think we have really achieved the level of patient-centeredness and family-centeredness that could be possible. More personalized medicine you're talking about. More personalized to the individual. Mm. 
So, so one thing that strikes me, for instance, about the uh, certified centers of excellence is that they are defined by what goes in. We have very clear criteria of who needs to be part of the clinic, that a clinic huddle has to happen, that research access has to be there. So the, there's a list of criteria that these clinics adhere to. We don't have a corresponding list to hear the outcomes we want to see. Mm. We want every person to be connected to palliative care. We want every person to have a certain level of quality of life. We want sort of measures that define what it looks like, what you get after you put all these things in. We're defined by what goes in, not so much by what comes out. I've heard you speak about that before, standardizing outcomes. And you think if you're able to to kind of turn things on its head and, and measure those outcomes instead, you're going to get better care. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So I happen to be an educator and there's a big shift in how we see, for instance, medical education. We had this fixed time variable outcome model for a long time. For instance, medical school is four years. Everybody goes to medical school for that same period of time. But you might have variable outcome in how much people have learned in those four years. And so medical education has now switched to saying we want to define the outcome. We want everybody to be a capable doctor coming out of medical school. Somebody might achieve that goal in three years or three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's nothing magic about the four-year time frame to achieve a certain outcome. I feel the same about the ALS clinic model. There's nothing magical about saying all these specialties have to be present in a clinic if we don't think about what the outcome is that we want. And so maybe it is okay to have variable input. Not every patient has to see everybody on the team or not everybody needs everybody on the team. For instance, if you think of somebody where ALS starts in the muscles for speaking and swallowing, they might not really need the physical therapist for quite a while. Mm. The reverse is true if you have difficulty with a foot drop and you have difficulty getting around, but your voice is perfectly fine for a very long period of time. You might not necessarily have to have the speech therapist be a part of your clinic visit. So really individualizing and customizing what goes in, but having a certain standard for what you want the outcome to be in terms of the satisfaction of the patient or the health outcomes that you're wanting to achieve, I think is a better model. That would require us to think a little bit differently of how we do things. I've heard so many individuals living with ALS talk about how helpless they felt after their diagnosis and how helpless their families have felt. And having really any sort of control and anything that you can give back in terms of control really means so much to those individuals. Yeah, there is this paradox that when people come to our clinic, they're not really looking forward to it, I would say, Mm -hmm. uh, because it reminds you that you are living with this. And the measurements we do and the assessments we do remind you that things have progressed. We put a number on it. You know, your score went down, your breathing number went down. So I don't think it's an easy thing to come to the clinic. And it is uh, definitely exhausting mentally as well as physically. Mm -hmm. But the best compliment we also get is that people still think it was a good thing to do when they leave and they feel that they walk away feeling more empowered, having better resources, having the right tools to make the next days and weeks just go smoother. That is a very meaningful outcome. Absolutely. We had Dr. David Walk on our last episode discussing research and he mentioned the importance of collaboration and sharing findings in that world to help drive progress. How much collaboration is there on the clinical care side? Do doctors and their teams connect with staff at other clinics in various regions, either state to state or around the world? 
Uh, do they talk about what's working with them? Is that Does that happen? Again, I think we're very lucky here in Minnesota because we get together on a quarterly basis with all the centers in the region. I don't know of any other areas in the country that have this level of networking and connection between their clinical programs. Mm. So we get together and share our best practices. We usually learn together, uh, have an invited speaker and learn about a topic that is relevant for our patients. So we're all on the same page. We inform each other about the research that is going going on at each center. So definitely a good thing to do. There's not as much collaboration, I would say, in terms of the actual delivery of care. We are very lucky here in Minnesota. We have certified centers at the Mayo Clinic, at the University of Minnesota, at Hennepin County Medical Center, at the VA. And we have about 500 people in the state living with ALS today. There are states in the country that have no centers like this. So Mm. we have a a real density of expertise and passion and caring in our area here. I sometimes wonder how we could leverage that to reach areas where patients don't have access to centers like this. Even though it's a patient-centric model, we still rely on the patient coming to us. And I have patients who come from the Dakotas, who come from Wisconsin, who have uh, maybe six to eight hour round trips sometimes to come to our clinic. And I think we might have opportunities here to, to get the care to them where they are. That's a perfect segue because I want to ask you about telemedicine, a very kind of hot topic right now and, and one that I think many see as the future uh, of medicine for a number of fields. How do you see telehealth visits fitting into ALS care? I think telemedicine is an excellent tool that we could use in the realm of care delivery for ALS patients. There are so many uses of telemedicine. For instance, it can be used to connect a local doctor's office to a center with expertise. Um, So let's say you are in a rural area, perhaps, and you're seeing your primary care doctor or local neurologist. Mm -hmm. That person from their office could link into a center and there could be a consultation or a conversation. Telemedicine can happen in people's homes. People can stay in their home and connect to their care team and see the speech therapist or the uh, dietitian and the neurologist by video conferencing from their home. Telemedicine can be used to monitor people. Um, There's a lot of diseases, for instance, where telemedicine is used very successfully to monitor a patient proactively in their home setting. A perfect example would be, for instance, congestive heart failure. One thing to watch would be a person's weight, also their vital signs. And so there are telemedicine programs where people have a scale in their home. That scale is connected through Wi-Fi to the phone or a computer that sends the weight on a daily basis to Mm -hmm. a center. And a nurse at that center looks at the numbers for a lot of different patients. But if she notices or he notices a change in the weight, there might be a call back to the patient to say, oh, what's happening? How are you feeling? Your weight is up. Could this be a sign that your heart is failing? Something like that could be possible with ALS as well. If we could monitor if people are having increasing difficulties with breathing throughout their disease, not just when they come to our clinic every three months. Yeah, because I imagine sometimes every three months is not enough. If you have an issue that's uh, arising with your disease and you don't have a clinical visit for another six weeks and trying to schedule something like that and even getting to the clinic, wherever it may be, very, very challenging. So having access to something like a telehealth visit might be the solution. Yeah, it would have incredible opportunities in terms of catching things early, in terms of using less energy and less time to come to the clinic, sometimes even not having to do that extra step of calling if we had ways to connect 
where we would watch, where we would be in touch, it would take that extra step out of even having to call to make an appointment. We could reach out and say, hey, we noticed this is happening. Tell us more. What can we do now? So that could be the future of care for ALS. And I would love to see us come together in those meetings to really think about how we could change the care model so that we scale it up and scale it down at the same time. Scale it down, meaning that we get down to the level of the individual to say, what does this person really, really need from us? But also scaling it up that we can get it to a population of people who live with that very same disease all across a variety of geographies and areas in the country. So scaling it down by scaling it up at the same time, I think that is the future of ALS care that we have to think about. Another very smooth transition, because the next thing that I want to ask you about is that individualized care. And I've heard you say before uh, when speaking about ALS care and research that perhaps someday down the road, we'll be able to individualize care to the, to the level of specific genes. So in other words, if you have this particular gene in your DNA and we know that impacts your disease progression in a certain way, we therefore may be able to tailor your treatment plan accordingly. You think that that's a place we'll reach at some point down the line? I absolutely think so. We have, over the last, I would say, five years, have seen tremendous progress in terms of understanding the genetic basis of this disease. And one of our struggles with ALS has been that we never knew what really causes the disease. And if you don't know what causes the problem, it's very hard to target that and do something about it. Sure. So knowing genes and knowing what these genes do and having methods now that are able to block those genes, block what they do, is really becoming a reality. We are having studies that are going on right now targeting some of the more common genes in ALS. And I absolutely hope that those things can be scaled up to be available, to be, become FDA approved and really show some impact on halting the disease progress. It's clear we have a long road ahead of us, but I think our listeners will really appreciate hearing your perspective, doctor, and knowing that you're on their side as we look to the future of ALS care and, and trying to make better care available to more people. Thank you. I knew this would be informative, but I feel like we got even more than we bargained for. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, Dr. Teriyaki, to be with us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. For our final segment, we spoke with Donnie Raveling, who is living with ALS here in St. Paul, Minnesota, about the need for home care for many people in his situation, as well as some of the challenges presented by our current healthcare system. Here's what Donnie had to say. We are joined in the studio today by Donnie Raveling of St. Paul, Minnesota, who is living with ALS and generously offered his time to speak with us today. Welcome to the show, Donnie. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. You're looking uh, excellent in orange. We're going to take some photos. I uh, want the guy to be notice orange. That's right. <laughs> I, I, I should tell our audience, orange is very much your color. You've always got a few pops on today. You've got a really bright, cool shirt on. Mm -hmm. It's good to see you. Before we get into home care, which is what I wanted to pick your brain about today, could you provide our listeners with a little bit of background about yourself and your ALS diagnosis? Well, I was diagnosed in... September of 2017, so not quite two years. Uh, I currently am having a little bit of breathing issues. That's how they found the ALS. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So I'm using uh, a BiPAP during the, the BiPAP machine, which is called a trilogy during the day. Yeah. I like to do things. I like to be outside. I'm kind of reworking some of the things I used to do because I can no longer do them. Mm-hmm. But I used to walk. So I, instead of walking, I stroll now. Mm. <laughs> That's what I call stroll. There you go. In the wheelchair. Um, I like to talk to people. So I spend a lot more. I get a lot of my energy from that. So, mm-hmm. but kind of depending on where I'm at and who I'm with, I kind of gauge that. But I should slow down because the more I speak, the more I... It uses your energy. Lose my energy. Sure, yep. sure. Has the BiPAP helped with that a little bit? Do you find yourself more energetic as the day goes on oh, than you yeah. were previously? Yeah. That's good. Yep. You're living in St. Paul now, and as you mentioned, your disease has progressed to the point where you're using a power chair to get around... Uh, it mm-hmm. sounds like you're going to be moving soon. What is your, what's your current care situation? Well, I'm needing some help in the shower, especially washing. Mm-hmm. Currently, washing from the knees down. Mm. I don't reach that far down real well. Um, I could use some help washing my hair. Right. So this. Uh, uh, that's, so that's my goal is to find a place that I can have that, where it's kind of a, it's not around the clock, but it's a, it's a service. Help with part those personal of the care needs, yep. And then I also need help daily with shaving. I don't have a long beard, but I like to keep it short. Yeah, so. you look good with that scruff. Mm-hmm. That's a good length for you. I can't pull that off. Mine's too patchy, yep. so I can't do that. But having those kind of personal care needs taken mm-hmm. care of is, is what you're after. And you're going to, that's for your, your new residence, you're going to have that. Right. I think mm-hmm. Medicare and Medicaid are probably the two coverages that come to mind immediately. Mm-hmm. And for anyone under 65 um, that are facing something as serious as ALS, mm-hmm. there may be some coverage for home health care available to you. But as anyone who started on this path will tell you, and, and as I'm sure you've discovered, it's lined with red tape. There are, Many requirements and restrictions. They're not going to cover things like round-the-clock care or personal care services that you talked about earlier, mm-hmm. things like bathing and dressing or using the toilet, meal delivery services, which you just mentioned. In most, most cases, those things aren't covered. And what is covered is usually only offered either short-term or intermittently. And even if you're someone who happens to meet the majority of their requirements for uh, dual eligibility in Medicare and Medicaid, there's still likely going to be significant out-of-pocket premiums, deductibles, co-payments. It's one of the reasons you hear about ALS being such a financial burden in addition to the physical and emotional challenges it presents. Yep, correct. Yep. Yeah, I find that so not only food, but uh, grooming, and, which includes showering. Uh, you also need some help with just even getting around mm-hmm. and that can be uh, costly. So we happen to have here in the cities uh, transportation, which a person can use, but if you're not comfortable with it, yeah, it's daunting. So you would need someone to go with you, you know, maybe for the first few times or you know, there's all kinds of daily living skills that 
that a person may need help with. Uh, mm -hmm. We haven't mentioned uh, private insurance, and, and that's an option for some folks that are eligible through an employer's plan. But again, the costs are typically going to compound regardless of the coverage you have. So, Donnie, in your opinion, what is it that needs to happen? Do we have to work harder on the legislative front to increase federal aid? Is it conversations with the insurance providers to, I guess, negotiate more reasonable rates for people living with ALS? How do we move forward? Uh, legislatively, we could do, for particular diseases especially, we could do a lot more with um, not having so many loopholes. Mm -hmm. If I don't know what else to call it except a loophole. Yeah. With especially like with Medicare, there are some loopholes that for certain diseases that because they want to they want to do it across the board for everything, right. and it's not the same for everything. No. No. So that's what I see legislatively, that we need to have less loopholes for certain disorders. I think everyone would agree with you on that front, Donnie. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned it's different with ALS, and ALS is unlike other diseases. And even within the ALS community, everyone's disease progression is different. So you can't just say having ALS is like having MS or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. They're all different diseases, and there needs to be special elections coverages for specifically those diseases. You can't just group them all together and say everyone needs the same coverage. And that's the fight that we've been having legislatively for years. And I think we are making progress, but clearly there's so much more that needs to be done. And loopholes is the right word. And it's probably the polite word to say loopholes. I've heard others kind of um, use some more colorful language when describing the insurance process and, and how frustrating it can be. So I think part of when you talk to people about home health care and some of the home health care professionals they've worked with, it's really critical that whoever is coming into the home to assist has an understanding of what ALS is and the needs of the person that they're going to be serving because we've said it many times, uh, there are differences um, about living with a disease and, and people's progressions are unique. And if you come in without that sort of education and knowledge, it's going to impact the care you're able to provide. So that's a it's kind of a subtopic of the home health care access uh, piece because just having someone come in is one thing, but having someone who's going to help and understand what you're going through and understand what your needs are, that's critical. It's very critical, yep. Um, to be able to kind of drop the preconceived notions of what a person needs mm -hmm. is the big thing, mm -hmm. especially with ALS because one moment I can feel just I can feel pretty good with something. Mm -hmm. um, the next moment, nope, I don't feel good at all. Yeah. That's because there's some exhaustion right. that goes on, and they can lose some strength. They can lose some um, feeling in their limbs. Yep. Um, yeah. They may lose some of their voice. Just help them. And all of those things are going to impact the care that they need. And then to allow them to do it, if they still can, is another issue too. Mm. Don't, I would say, don't just, just don't automatically do something for someone. Right. Ask them if they want help with that, because um, 
it's it's so important to have that self-esteem and sometimes the self-esteem is only kept if a person can do it for themselves um, and encouraging them if they say yep I need help with that just encourage them because they don't they don't maybe they can do it and they want to give up because um, that happens too yeah losing independence must be such a a big part, a big challenge uh, yep. with this disease and, and not being able to do the things that you have your whole life and seeing those kind of slip away. It must be really, really hard. It is. Yep. Well, Donnie, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today and for providing your thoughts on a really, really important subject. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate hearing from you on this. And, and thanks so much for coming in. Thank you hope for having see, me. Hope we see you again soon. It. Yep. Good. I hope to be here. After speaking with Donnie, we asked Jennifer Myrie of the ALS Association to provide some additional context to our home healthcare discussion. Jennifer works with families on a daily basis to navigate the complexities of insurance and Medicare, and she makes some strong points in our final segment. I'm looking forward to speaking with our next guest for a number of reasons. Her name is Jennifer Myrie, and she is a care services coordinator for the ALS Association. She has helped connect individuals and families facing ALS to resources and support for more than a decade, and she's the perfect person to introduce uh, to our conversation about home care. But I'm also excited to have her on the microphone because she has this amazingly soothing voice. Uh, welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for being here today. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> it's true. I, I feel like <laughs> people listen to you read uh, an encyclopedia. You do all of our voiceovers for our PSAs and our ads and Happy to have you on. Well, that's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> but the uh, the real reason we wanted to have you in, on Connecting ALS was to talk about home care. And we had Donnie Raveling join us recently to give his perspective as someone living with the disease. But I'd like your input since you hear from people every day about this issue. And let's start there. Where does access to home health care rank in terms of a priority for people? And not just those living with ALS. It's a big question for a huge swath of the population right now, correct? That's right. It ranks way up to the top. Access to home care for people with ALS and for anybody who is aging, is differently abled, is something that is of key importance. And among the roadblocks that people will run into when seeking home health care, Biggest one has to be cost, right? Because Medicare and Medicaid, which a lot of people are depending on in this instance, that coverage for this situation has a ton of gaps in it. That's right. And there's a small portion of the population who may qualify for Medicaid. A person has to have an income that's low enough and assets that are few enough in order to be able to tap into that program. Mm -hmm. Once they do, they can qualify for quite a bit in the way of care at home. But again, as I said, that's a small portion of the population. And while many people with ALS do eventually qualify for Medicare, as you noted, Medicare has pretty limited coverage when it comes to daily care in the home. Mm -hmm. What are some of those limitations? So in order to qualify for care in the home under Medicare, a person has to first be homebound, meaning that with the exception of medical appointments, and I believe now it's attending church, somebody is unable to leave their home. 
So that's first and foremost. And then they have to have some sort of skilled need, according to Medicare. And a skilled need could be something like education following a hospitalization. So for example, people with ALS oftentimes opt for a feeding tube, which is a medical procedure that, you know, may require, uh, depending on the situation, a stay in the hospital, but certainly some monitoring at home some of the time, a, a nurse to come out and make sure that it's healing well. Sometimes skilled care involves a physical therapist, so a PT to come out and evaluate the situation at home, provide some teaching on a certain piece of equipment. So something that Medicare considers a skilled need that would require a nurse and or a physical therapist is generally what it would be. And as you talked about earlier, even then, this is temporary. Mm -hmm. This is not an ongoing type of care in the home. And there are limitations to those types of care themselves, correct? I mean, things like personal care services aren't covered. Why is that? Is that just a cost issue because it's so specialized? What does that relate to? My understanding is that Medicare would be looking at what is absolutely necessary to the situation that they're providing coverage for. Now, sometimes if somebody has a skilled nursing need, let's say it's a wound that needs monitoring and managing, then Medicare might also cover a home health aide to come out once or twice a week to assist this person in the bath, for example. Mm. That can often happen during an episode. So during that limited amount of time, they would cover what they think is medically necessary given the skilled need. Sure. And that's not always going to be a home health aid. Right. And in most cases, what they deem medically necessary isn't going to cover just routine bathing or hygiene things, uh, using the toilet, getting dressed. Those things things typically aren't covered. That's right. You know, those are what Medicare would call custodial care. And custodial care is that, you know, day in and day out types of care that somebody might need. You know, activities, we we consider um, ADLs or activities of daily living, those things that we all have to do mm-hmm. every day when we get out of bed in the morning. So we get up, we use the restroom, we take a shower, we brush our hair, brush our teeth. Medicare considers those kinds of things custodial things that we all do every day versus some sort of skilled need in the home. Right. It would make sense that if somebody needed help with those things, that there would be a way to pay for them. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say that I'm someone that's living with ALS or I have a loved one that's living with ALS. I call the ALS Association to talk to you about what my options are. Where do we even begin? I mean, you have to just go down this list and ask a bunch of questions before you even know where to start. Sometimes, you know, I often, this is a common question that I do get. It's Mm -hmm. a common phone call and it's it's one of the harder phone calls to take and to have to talk to people about. I really start with the landscape of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Or I should say, I start with a landscape of home care. And we do run through a list. We talk about what Medicare is and how it's different than Medicaid because yeah. people often confuse those yeah. two things. We talk about how to qualify for those things and what the limitations of those things can be. I always ask people if they're a veteran or not. And mm-hmm. if they're a veteran, then it's a different situation. Fortunately for our veterans, they have access to more benefits 
more things like care in the home. Mm. And so then it becomes a slightly easier conversation. Right. Often the conversation will turn to ways that people can bring together the informal supports that they have in their lives mm. to see if that's a way to help manage some of the needs that they have in the home. And people don't often expect the conversation to turn to that. But it is important to talk about those things because they generally are the things that do fill in the gaps. Right, right. If someone checks all these boxes and meets all these qualifications to receive essentially the maximum amount of home care they can, and they're not a veteran, let's say they don't have access to those veteran services, but they check all the other boxes, but they're someone who's in need of 24-hour care. Let's say they are in later stages of the disease and perhaps they're using some kind of ventilator, something like that, and they need longer-term care, they meet all those qualifications, they're still going to end up paying quite a bit out of pocket even if they're hitting all those marks, right? Oh, that's absolutely true. And and one of the things that, you know, regardless of where somebody is in their disease progression, we, we do talk about the option of privately paying for care. And for most people who are earlier on in the progression, it is assistance with those activities of daily living. And that requires typically a home health aide, a PCA or personal care attendant, mm-hmm. or depending on the state that they live in, it could be a CNA. And the average cost of something like that is going to be $35 an hour, mm-hmm. give or take. And for people who just are looking for a couple of hours of help a day, that adds up Yeah, and is cost prohibitive for many. Mm-hmm. And so then if you're talking about, you know, the disease progressing to the point of needing 24-hour care, it really becomes an impossibility for most people to pay out of pocket because you're looking at something between thirty dollars and $40,000 a month. Wow. So more than some people make in a year. Yeah. So what tends to happen in those situations, quite frankly, is people pay for as long as they can out of pocket and then eventually may qualify for Medicaid because they've spent down the resources that they do have and now do have a low enough amount of money where they can qualify for Medicaid. That's really unfortunate. Yeah, it's sort of an, it feels like an all or nothing Mm -hmm. kind of situation. Mm -hmm. It is unfortunate. I do think that we as a society, need to figure out how to get better at supporting one another and receiving support more informally Mm. because there is that type of potential help around us, some more than others. It just depends on a person's situation. But the more that we can tap into that alongside with any progress that is being made around home health care, I think, is going to be crucial. Right. The ALS Association does have a program that we talk about. It's a model called Care Connection. Mm. And it does instruct families, essentially, on how to tap into potential networks that may exist around us that we may not even think about. So, for example, if I belong to a faith community, Are there people in that community who may be able to assist me at home? Neighbors, former coworkers, these kinds of things. And then, you know, how do we ask for that help? Because 
from doing this as long as I have, one of the things that I do see consistently across the board is that the people around us do want to help. They have to be asked. They have to be asked and they and they just don't, yeah, they don't know how necessarily. So yeah. how do we how do we direct that good intention to making that work for people in the home? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. On the agency side of things, the, the organizations that are providing home care for individuals and their families, you deal with those folks quite a bit. Are there challenges there in terms of um, how those organizations are structured or um, how they staff their employees or how they manage the organizations that create issues down the line for people who need this care? Yeah. So we've seen somebody, for example, qualify for Medicaid and be granted a certain amount of hours per per day of, of home care. Sometimes it's difficult to find an agency who can actually staff that many hours. So, you know, we've seen some families divide the time between two agencies in order to make that happen. The, The truth of the matter is in home care at this point in time, and it's been this way for a while, it's not always easy to find staff to to work for an home care agency. I think one of the other issues that is important to look at is how much are these folks getting paid? Yep. And how can we draw more people into the the business of home care so that they want to stick around and they want to be able to work with these families. So, unfortunately, there can be a fair amount of turnover in the home care world. Yep. So that's one issue. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, another issue uh, that's a reality is for people who live in areas that are more rural, whether that's rural Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, we may have a difficult time finding in a home care agency that just even covers that area. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are a number of additional circumstances that can become limitations. The more we talk about it, the more complex it sounds. And I can't imagine if you're living with a disease and dealing with the emotional and physical challenges that presents, having to add this on top of that and think about navigating the healthcare system and insurance. And it's, it's a burden that no one needs. I couldn't agree more. I think it's incredibly unfortunate. It would be great to see some changes over time. Jennifer, what's it going to take in your mind to get us there to make access easier to make this kind of care more affordable. Is that all happening at the federal level? Are there things we can do to get through to legislators? Should we be working directly with insurance providers on solutions? What what can we do? I do think it's probably all of the above. I wish I felt more certain mm-hmm. about how to go about it. I do think that absolutely getting in front of our legislators is going to make a difference, mm-hmm. helping them to see how much of a struggle it is for families dealing with ALS. I think there is potential for working with insurance companies as well because, you know, they, they can make their own decisions, mm-hmm. but they do tend to follow the model of Medicare. Yeah, We have seen some folks advocate very heavily for themselves with their insurers and have some luck Mm. with getting their insurer to provide more coverage than, frankly, I ever thought we'd see that insurer provide. And while I do feel it's more of an exception to the rule, I think it's important. I think these family members would want me to share with the ALS community that it has happened. It's taken some folks a lot of 
time and effort Mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. But there has been that occasional success story of, hey, I got my insurance company to pay for X amount of care for me per day. Yep. That's encouraging, and and we want folks to be able to be their own advocates and for family members Mm -hmm. to be advocates for their loved ones. Truth is, we all need to be louder about it. We all need to be advocates on this front, but that's encouraging to hear that. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Myrie, thanks so much for your time and expertise today. This is a, a huge topic that I'm sure we will touch on again down the road. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, and uh, thank you. That's going to wrap up episode two of Connecting ALS, and I want to thank all of you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe at ConnectingALS.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can email us at ConnectingALS at ALSMN.org. We'd love to hear your feedback and answer your questions, so feel free to shoot us a message. Thanks as well to all of our guests for their time. We'll be back next month with new content. Connecting ALS is produced by Garrett Tiedemann from the headquarters of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter in St. Paul, Minnesota. 